everybody, this is Jeff from Startup Sack. At our first Startup Sack Happy Hour of 2019, we were lucky enough to welcome back Greg Connolly, co-founder and CEO of Trifecta Systems. This was a great event, and with the support of our food and drink sponsors, KiwiTech and Witten Law, we demolished all previous attendance records, with 65 people turning out to Hot Italian in Midtown to network and hear Greg answer startup questions. There were some great questions, and Greg came through with awesome tips, advice, and insights. Take a listen. Excited to see the growth in this event. I actually did one of these. It was maybe the fourth time that they had done this, and we had a, a whopping 15 people at it. So, uh, yeah. an incredible amount of progress to see everybody here, you know, supporting the startup community in Sacramento. Um, to give you guys a quick background bio on me, uh, five-time entrepreneur. Uh, this is actually my fifth company and came from kind of the San Francisco, you know, tech startup scene. Across all five of those businesses, I've raised, you know, everything from friends and family to angel funds to venture capital, uh, maybe a little over $22 million across all five businesses at this point. Um, two of them I successfully sold, uh, two of them I successfully failed, and uh, Trifecta has has probably been the, the biggest success of all of them by far. Uh, to give you guys a quick background on Trifecta, uh, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, we are a meal delivery service company, and in September of 2017, uh, with the help of the uh, Witten Law team, we actually acquired an app company called DMW Design Group. Um, so we now have a, a top 30 health and fitness app called the Trifecta app. Uh, as well as a large meal delivery service where we ship food you know, throughout the entire country. Uh, we believe at this point we may be the largest fully prepared uh, all-organic meal delivery service in the country. Our kitchen is shipping a uh, little over 400,000 meals a month, uh, which is a lot of food at this point. Uh, we are opening up a new facility in Anaheim that's you know 55,000 square feet of kitchen, 22,000 square feet of refrigeration. So you know imagine four mansions inside of a refrigerator. Um, it's a, a huge, huge facility that'll give us scalability to do about three million meals a month. Um, in terms of you know other metrics, uh, I know in the kind of prelim thing. Uh, they quoted me from one of my old Reddit uh, AMAs that we had done, I think 11,000% growth. Uh, that's relatively outdated at this point. We're, we're probably well over 100,000% growth since inception. Uh, if you take, you know, Inc. 500 style month one uh, to where we are now, we're doing, you know, multi-millions of dollars in sales every month. Um, and yeah, just trying to, to really scale to fulfill our company mission, which is you know to help get America back into shape. Um, in terms of the food itself, we make everything under the sun at this point: paleo, keto, vegan, vegetarian, uh, you name it. You know, macro-based stuff, etc. Um, and we ship it uh, fully prepared, vacuum-sealed, and refrigerated cases. To all 50 states, including you know Alaska and Hawaii, um, we've also got a pretty sophisticated tech stack at this point. Uh, a lot of in-house developers, uh, you know, front end, back end, QA, you know, all that type of stuff. So I'm sure there's some software entrepreneurs in here as well. Uh, I come from the the software as a service industry in in Sacramento, so you know, should be be able to hopefully answer a lot of software questions as well. 
Um, other stuff I should cover, uh, did 10 years in San Francisco, you know, in the kind of uh, software scene, followed by seven years in Los Angeles, and uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, my wife actually uh, graduated, did her undergrad at UC Davis, uh, and we loved the area and wanted to kind of move back to Sacramento, which is actually the area I grew up in, uh, so, you know, trying to do my part to help uh, turn the Sacramento startup community into, you know, the awesome community I experienced in the Bay Area. Uh, and that, you know, starts with all of us in this room. So any questions I can answer for anybody, I think we kind of have this set up as a AMA, you know, type situation. So um, ask me as hard of questions as possible. Hopefully I will be able to be helpful and add a lot of value to the, to the group. Um, First question. Laura's got it. Yeah. I'll kick it off. So, you've been in Sacramento almost three years now, is that right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, what's your uh, what's your feel for the startup ecosystem? Um, has it grown? Is it changing over those three years? How would you rate us? Um, I, I, I think, yeah, Sacramento's headed in the, the right direction really fast. Uh, I think the stadium moving into downtown, you know, the $3.75 billion, et cetera, that went into the kind of DOCO area uh, has been phenomenal. Uh, we've got an amazing leader with uh, Barry over at Greater Sacramento Economic Council. He helped us a lot, you know, when we were first moving to the the area. You know, some awesome startup contests that I would highly suggest you guys do. Uh, we we did the Ethan Conrad startup contest. You know, got a bunch of money from that. Uh, we won the Kings Tech Night uh, startup contest in 2017, I believe. So you know, got a check from Monetta Ventures for that. Uh, you know, those were generally just to get kind of early stage press around the startup, but have really. Uh, enjoyed the community uh, from that standpoint. I'm also a member of EO. I've tried Vistage and Young Entrepreneurs and you know all these different uh, organizations in Sacramento. I definitely think uh, EO is, is probably the best group. Uh, have learned from phenomenal people in our forum, like you know Mark Haney, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, uh, over at Haney Biz. Uh, one of our board members is Tom Candris, uh, who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar as well, had a well into the nine figures uh, exit from his last company. So, you know, a lot of these guys are uh, and girls are, are just phenomenal entrepreneurs that I've, I've learned a lot from that have had, you know, exits in the hundreds of millions of, you know, in some cases, billions of dollars. Um, so the community is getting a lot better and, uh, and yeah, excited to kind of see it continue scale uh, as, as the community expands. Sure. So for some okay, I'm entirely concerning my company, which is incredibly hard. Uh, so going back to your first startup, how did you acquire the funds? Was it Bootstrap? And then what advice would you, um, for someone who's been entirely successful, what advice would you give to someone who's having their first startup and is Bootstrap? Sure. So, uh, great question. It's a, a question I, I actually get quite a bit. Um, going into Trifecta, just to set the groundwork, uh, I had actually come off of a failed startup. Uh, so, I had lost roughly $1.8 million in investor funds and was somewhere around $750,000 in debt myself. Um, so, definitely was 
way below bootstrapping, you know, to, to get back into the game. Um, but in, in terms of bootstrapping, it's all about minimum viable product. When it comes to fundraising and bootstrapping, one of the most common questions I get from early stage entrepreneurs is like, oh, how do I raise those first funds? How do I, if I can just get that first million in the door, you know, I can, you know, build my parachute as I jump off the cliff type thing. And it, it they, they kind of go hand in hand. You want to, you know, be building the minimum viable product, especially if you're, you, you know, and what I mean by minimum viable product for those that aren't familiar, uh, something that you ha- can show demonstrable customer interest in. You know, you want to, have uh, an idea that's great, but you want to set up a you know a website, um, you know come up with a product that you can actually get some level of traction, even if it's just a few customers. And that can be on the B two B side, you know a few people that have you know written or verbally committed to you know buy something from you. And on the consumer side, like us, that can be taking the website live and trying to get those those first few orders in the door. But, you know, it's definitely about getting the minimum viable product up and running. Uh, if you don't have funds even for that, uh, you can start bootstrapping, you know, a website just so you can get some brand visibility. And then there are a lot of options now, especially compared to, you know, when I first started doing this, you know, 17 years ago, there's Kickstarter and all kinds of different ways that you can get that first Five, ten, fifteen—you know, twenty thousand dollars—to really uh, get some traction on your, you know, your first prototype or you know something along those lines. Uh, think of something like Kickstarter as a way to take a lot of pre-orders from customers. That's also a way to get that first early stage traction. We did that with Trifecta. We took the website live when we knew we didn't have any food to ship to people. And we set the website up uh, to accept pre-orders. And people were so interested in the product that people started ordering, swiping their credit cards, and giving us money uh, before we actually had something to ship. So that can be done through a number of bootstrapping you know, tactics, uh, you know, build up your social media, do some follow-one following so you can build up a small you know, base there, that type of stuff. But, you know, I'm... I, I hate to use the word expert, but I'm pretty good at the social media side of the fence. We've got about 110,000 followers on our Instagram, you know, half a million on YouTube. You know, we've got some pretty big numbers. Uh, we partner with, you know, a couple hundred celebrities and celebrity athletes. So uh, there are ways to kind of bootstrap for free that only require your hard work, um, you know, to get it up and running. So minimum viable product, then go to friends and family, get, you know, some funds or Kickstarter. Uh, and then from there, build up a small user base and then go to something like SAC Angels or an angel investor group. Uh, maybe raise some additional money there, then continue to scale that up to a larger, uh, you know, user base, and then you'll be able to raise venture capital in a Series A, uh, you know, like we did, and then eventually, you know, Series B, you can look at bigger VC dollars or private equity or, you know, something along those lines. But it's about going in those steps. Nobody is going to invest in your company until you have customers, and even then, it's really hard to get people to invest in your company. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, always be focused on the kind of, uh, you know, getting some traction, minimum viable product, showing that you have a working business model to, to begin to scale up. Thank you. Yeah, and if I'm long-winded in my answers, cut me off. Or the CD? Uh, yeah. Uh, did you give your experience or advice on how to stay ahead of your competitors 
in this similar space in the street um, I've found over the years that I focus less and less on the competitors, um, and that really is because I want to get the highest, best use of my time and spending a ton of time trolling their social media or website or looking them up in SEM Rush to see if I'm beating them in traffic. Uh, you can get ideas from your competitors sometimes. You know, maybe they're a first mover on a particular product feature or something like that, but uh, for the most part, uh, I'm a big advocate of kind of focusing on building the best possible product or service and, you know, scaling up from there. And then, you know, when you're much larger is when you actually, you know, start worrying about competitors when you're carving out, you know, market share of the, you know, the total market type thing. Um, so yeah, that, that'd be my easy answer on it and easy tools to track your competitors you know, SEM Rush for website traffic, Iconosquare for, you know, Instagram and other social medias. There's lots of cheaper free software so you can keep an eye on their growth rate. And that's really the main thing to focus on is not how much bigger than you they are, it's who's growing the fastest. That's what investors care about. How do you spread well as an spend time and resource market and making sure that you understand pretty pains and solve the um, I, I mean, I just say yes to that. <laughs> you you kind of want to do both in parallel. Uh, I found, it, especially in the software industry, but in most industries over the years, it's all about iteration. You know, get a minimum viable product out there. The customers are going to tell you how to you know, improve it and evolve it and adapt it, you know, with the market over time. So, you know, I'm all about speed to market. If you can get out there quickly, definitely do it. Um, but if you have the money, even if it's small amounts of money, invest in the things that are going to be useful long term. So, you know, for Trifecta, I'd love to tell you guys I came up with the brand name myself, but, you know, we hired McLean Design out in the Bay Area one of the best branding firms in the country. You can hire them for like 10 grand to build a brand for you. Uh, they'll do color schemes and all of that type of stuff. They've done brands like they took Hanson's Energy and turned it into Monster Energy. Um, so, you know, a lot of major multi-billion dollar brands and you can use their services for dirt cheap. Um, so those type of things I think are important to get done right in the beginning, if that makes sense. But overall, get to market as quickly as possible and just iterate, 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 uh, you know, as you continue to scale the business. What was your favorite way for getting feedback from users? Generally, they're not shy. Uh, <laughs> they will, uh, you can directly talk to them, especially the first customers. You're going to have an almost constant dialogue. Uh, we have a gentleman uh, named James Toman. He lives in Michigan. He's, I think, 86 years old now, and he's our oldest customer. He's been with us for almost a lifetime of the business, which is unheard of in our space. He spent a little over $43,000 with us, uh, which means we fed him for over three years straight. Um, and he has our cell phones, you know, he, we've had loads of conversations with him. So you, the metrics uh, investors are going to care about are going to be things like uh, customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, you know, a lot of these metrics. And your high lifetime value customers are going to be your 
VIP customers and you want an almost constant dialogue going on with them. Why are they buying so much of your stuff? Why are they sticking around for a, a long time? What are you not doing that they want to see in the future? You know, they'll give you the direct feedback, uh, you know, even if there's only five of them, you know, or, or one, your first customer, like James. I think you had a question up here. Yeah, um, you guys scaled really Um, I think part of it was I knew a lot of the kind of right things to do because this is my, you know, fifth rodeo here. Um, but we scaled so quickly utilizing social media, which is, you know, it's something that I hate to tell you guys because it's, it's, uh, something I think a lot of people try and do and very few people are able to successfully do right. Uh, we utilize something called a social influencer strategy, um, which I'm sure there are some B2B people in here. Trust me, there are social influencers for B2B, B2G, etc. cetera. Uh, but we, we utilized celebrities and celebrity athletes that wanted to eat our food and we said, hey, we'll feed you for free if you post about our food on YouTube or Instagram, etc. And they had multi-million person audiences, uh, and they were able to you know, help us scale and give visibility very quickly. Um, the caveat on that, and I've done a bunch of interviews on the internet you know, talking about social influencer you know, marketing. The caveat on that is you have to do a lot of things correctly, and you have to have a uh, the ability to make sure you're getting the ROI from those social influencers. So we have, we use a, a software platform called Impact Radius, uh, you know, amongst others that essentially makes all these celebrities and celebrity athletes uh, commission-only salespeople for us. So if they promote us on their social media, we give them a unique vanity URL that's like, you know, trifectanutrition.com backslash The Rock. And if The Rock posts it and a whole bunch of people click and come to our website, we pay him a commission on those people. And that aligns our economic incentives. So our influencers, the more they post about us, the more money they make, which most people try and do social influencer marketing and they go, oh, I'll pay $5,000 to post three times this month. And guess how many times that celebrity is going to post about you that month? Three times. They're going to do the minimum possible amount they can to get your money. So you want to make sure that you're aligning everybody's incentives with, uh, you know, with with your business. And now we partner with huge organizations like the UFC. We have a five-year exclusive with the UFC. Uh, the CrossFit Games, we're about to announce a, a six-year deal with the PGA. Even for major organizations like that, the UFC is like, oh, for $400,000, we can put your logo in the octagon. And I'm like, that's cute. I'd, I'd much rather have you, you know, do a YouTube video featuring UFC champion X eating our food and promote that across all your channels. Um, digital is everything today. We all spend all day on our laptops and phones, and that's really been the reason that we've scaled so quickly. Is I, I got the influencers, you know, economically aligned with us, and then at the same time, I said no to a lot of shit that was not digital focused. You know, everybody has a way to spend your money, and you want to make sure, no matter what. What you're doing is ROI focused. Everything is like, how much money am I 
making per employee, per partnership, per celebrity, you know, everything. We're always looking at the ROI, and that allowed us to constantly be making money to pour back into the company to scale phenomenally quickly. So what happens when you don't have a product, but it's a service that you're selling? How will you do that with an influence? It depends, depends what the service is. Um, if you don't have a product, you have a service, you know, for an influencer. Uh, there's tons of services that, that influencers want. You can find local influencers anywhere, you know. Uh, Uriah Faber right here in Sacramento, him and I host a podcast together, and that's partially because he's a celebrity Hall of Fame UFC fighter. It's also partially because he's right here in Sacramento, and he can come down to the office and do podcasts at any time. Um, so making sure that uh, you've, and this is a caveat to the influencer thing as well, making sure that you've got an influencer that you're going to be able to work with that's also channel aligned to your space. And what I mean by that is if you're selling... You know, give me an example service. And so if you're selling makeup, um, good Lord, there's influencers in your space. I could, I could send you 40 in Sacramento alone. But, uh, you know, let's say it's, you know, a makeup service or something like that. Uh, you, you want somebody who it, people look to to get advice on makeup. If, you know, you could bring on Uriah Faber and he's got a million followers on Instagram, but nobody looks to Uriah Faber for makeup advice. You know, they, he's probably never worn it in his entire life, uh, in, you know, unless he's covering bruises on his face or something. So, yeah, for the most part, you want someone that's channel aligned, preferably the first people you want to be local. Uh, and then, you, you know, you want to sell them on why they should be involved in your company and you're the next big thing. So I was, uh, I think it was December of uh, 2017, uh, a doctor of uh, Trifecta. Oh, nice. And have uh, really enjoyed your product. Thank you. Um, and I wanted to know, is there, like, can you pare it down to, like, one decision that you made that was, like, really made the difference for you? In terms of what? Just, you know, in terms of being able to grow your business so well, so fast. One decision? Uh, no, probably not. <laughs> um, I, I, I definitely try and make like ROI-focused decisions constantly. Uh, I get that decision-making, you know. How did you decide that that was going to be like your focus? Um, I made a lot of mistakes in the past. Okay. Uh, you know, my previous company was another consumer packaged goods company, okay. and uh, I did the things like the name in the middle of the octagon and various other stuff. I mean, not with the UFC, but, you know, those type of things that were not ROI-focused and were expensive and ended up spending whole bunches of money in the process. So now everything we do is trackable. It's probably digital. And I've probably got, you know, some caveat in the contract that says, if I don't get the ROI on XYZ, you know, we need to renegotiate this thing because we want a long-term relationship. And thank you so much because uh, your customer service is, is the reason that I've stayed with you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. We, we call them customer champions. They are amazing. So, good. Uh, semi-personal question. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing this between 17 and 20 years. How old are you? And how have you structured your life to give you the tools to be successful? Um, I like some of the other people here are bootstrapping and invested over $100,000. I'd like not to make the same mistakes that you made in the past. I'd hope that for you as well. How, I mean, like, how have you structured your 
personal life, the way you spend your time, mm -hmm. um, almost on a day-to-day -day or a, throughout the day, how do you how do you make the most of every hour, mm -hmm. every minute? Uh, sure, sure. It, it's. Uh, Oh, sorry. So the question was, how do I structure like my day, my time, etc., to kind of maximize uh, <laughs> uh, to kind of maximize uh, you know utility when it comes to uh, my time in the business? Uh, I'll take you all the way back to the beginning. I started my first business uh, right when I was getting into college. I was you know, 17 and a half at the time, um, and it was a web design company. Uh, back when the internet was first coming out and we I went around to local businesses and was like the yellow pages are dead this new thing the internet is going to be huge uh, et cetera et cetera um, so yeah that was that was about 17 years ago I'm, I'm 35 now um, so you know I've been that's hopeful for me yeah yeah so it's it's been definitely a saga um, I, you know one of the best quotes I, I ever took was a interview with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, uh, you know, kind of going back and forth with each other. And uh, Steve Jobs was talking about, you know, the same thing you guys hear ad nauseum, like you have to be passionate about what you do. And he said the reason for it isn't that, you know, you're going to feel better about your life or any of that type of stuff. It's that it's so hard that any rational person would quit they would quit because it's so difficult to get through all of it. So, you know, I, it's fun for me to do these things sometimes, but, you know, come up here and talk about, oh, you know, we're making tens of millions of dollars and all this type of stuff, but holy shit has it been hard. I've had 2 a.m. fights with my wife where she's like, you spent all our money and, you know, this and that and all that type of stuff. I mean, it is, it is definitely a battle. Uh, I try and maintain a very good work-life balance, make sure we're doing date nights, all that type of stuff. I see my friends, you know, all those type of things. Uh, so don't, like, burn yourself out on, you know, doing the startup thing. Uh, but at the same time, it is a lot of work. There are many, many weeks where I work seven days, and then Monday comes around, and I'm going right back in on Monday. You know, this last weekend, I flew to L.A. for a bunch of meetings all weekend long on Friday, and then flew back Sunday night and walked into, you know, the office on Monday morning. So going to the other part of your question, which was how do I... Uh, maximize my productivity. Uh, you guys will quickly see with your business that the backlog of features you want to build or, you know, things your customers are asking for or whatever the situation is, uh, is longer than you're probably ever going to get to. So the best turn of phrase I've heard for it is the highest best use of your time. What thing can you do now that's going to move the business forward the most in the short term? Which goes back to the, the ROI discussion, how I'm constantly, you know, my marketing team and my development team, we work in weekly sprints. We use, you know, the scrum model and we go, okay, what is the stuff that we can do this week that is going to be the most effective to really move the business forward? I also, in my decision-making process, will think, okay, if... I got hit by a bus and Richard Branson or somebody else was doing my job, would they be doing what I'm doing right now? Or would they be calling Michael Jordan going, Michael Jordan, we need you on board, you know, like, let's make this happen. Like, a lot of the stuff we've done is audacious. You know, I've talked to celebrities where I'm about to walk in the room and I'm just, you know, I, I don't get scared of it anymore, but in the beginning I was terrified, you know, to walk into the room and 
you just have to kind of jump and take those risks to try and maximize you know what you're doing with your time to move the business forward as as quickly as possible so i'm constantly reevaluating my priorities going is what i'm working on right now what's going to move the business forward the most the fastest and a, a great book to read on that uh, about kind of periodization of your thought process is the 12 week year you break down a whole year into 12 weeks and it's literally a year and a quarter and you can get more done in 12 weeks than most people get done in an entire year you know 12, 12 weeks a year it, it's called the 12 week year yeah i've read like a thousand books so if you guys need book recommendations uh, give me a shot so Sure. So, um, cash is definitely the number one thing uh, that will stop you in your tracks really fast. Uh, employees, when you have two or three employees and you miss a payroll. You could probably sell them on why you're going to be able to pay them in a week or something like that or two weeks, etc. When you have a lot of employees and you miss a payroll, they're going to come after you with the pitchforks. So, you know, you I definitely am constantly watching, watching cash flow. Uh, we're very lucky in our business that, uh, you know, we're in a situation where every week our customers pay us in advance of us buying the food to cook, to ship to them receiving it and eating it. Um, so every week we get a big pile of cash dumped on the table, we scrape a big chunk of it off the table, and then we use the rest to pay for food, cooking, shipping, packaging, all you know, labor, etc. cetera. Um, so cash is definitely the number one thing. Um, trying to think above and beyond that. I think kind of culture and morale is the other thing I'm constantly trying to keep a heartbeat on. You know, in the beginning, it's going to be you being, you know, an amazing, fun person to be around that everybody's like buying the dream of, you know, the company is going to be this this big successful thing. Uh, and then once you start having a lot of people on the team, uh, you you get further and further away from your latest employee because they're, uh, they haven't been involved in the company as long, they don't know you as well, and you really have to go out of, the, out of your way to, um, you know, to make sure you're, you're keeping the company culture cohesive, you're only hiring the right type of people. Uh, so those are probably the two things that I always have top of mind are, are cash and culture. Because you know another one of the best quotes I ever heard, this one's a, a Richard Branson quote, is you know, a business is literally just a group of people working on a project together. Trifecta is not a real thing. You know, it's some graphics and a website and we ship a lot of food and have various offices and stuff, but uh, it's really just a bunch of people working on a project together. And I, I go way out of my way to make sure my people are happy and you know, know that they're working at the best place they possibly can be in Sacramento, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, yeah. <laughs> so um, next one. So someone who shifts as much organic food as you do, how have you and the team thought about sourcing that with different farms? Are you talking to farms who are organic farmers? Um, some of both. There are definitely, there's kind of uh, conventional, there's people that are in, you know, transitional 
uh, periods because it takes a while for them to convert over and then there's people that are already you know fully organic um, yeah at this point we have like in-house buyers and stuff like that that are you know constantly going around sourcing stuff but yeah in the beginning it was you know meeting suppliers and asking them about their facilities and you know yeah yeah just having those you know those conversations if there's certain stuff you can't find you know maybe in the short term you before you can go direct to the supplier finding a distributor who works with you know organic broccoli farmers or whatever it is and try and get intros that way um but yeah i mean it's it's a lot of work in the beginning on the you know the sourcing side getting all of that up and running uh but thanks to kind of people that were the tip of the spear like whole foods um you know the organic industry is into the many billions so you know even though we're big we're still a tiny baby compared to whole foods uh, if that makes sense you have to wait good a lot of meal delivery food delivery place ideas have failed what are some mistakes that you guys have seen that others have done because Sure. So I, I was talking about metrics in the beginning that really matter. Uh, things like customer acquisition cost. Uh, because of my influencer marketing model, I'm able to bring customers on board for significantly less than someone like a Muntree or a Blue Apron or a lot of the meal kit companies where they're paying sometimes two, $300 through Facebook ads, free food that they're shipping out, all of these things to acquire a customer, you know, customer acquisition cost. Uh, so keeping our customer acquisition costs down, and then we're not a kit. So we're usually shipping people, you know, maybe a meal a day on the low end, for some people, three meals a day. So we're shipping them 21 meals in a week compared to someone like, Blue Apron who may ship them two meals in a week uh, because we have a, an after state. We're getting people into great shape by them eating our food. Um, so there's kind of a, a means to an end of eating trifecta that the meal kit companies simply don't have. So that's another big component of it. They're more of like a, a gimmick. You want to have a romantic night with your significant other or something or you want to learn about cooking, whatever it is. Uh, you know, that's another big one. Um, waste is another huge one. So Muntry, uh, since we are raising capital in the, the Bay Area right now, uh, we've gotten lots of questions about them. They ripped through a whopping $125 million at blinding speed. Uh, they were Their burn rate was over $5 million a month, and that was from waste. So they decided who... You know, their CEO should be, you know, thrown off a bridge. Uh, decided that it was a good idea for them to do daily meal delivery, which, you know, if you're looking at it from uh, just a consumer standpoint, that's, you know, fantastic. You're like, oh, wow, I can, I can just order a meal today and that meal comes directly to my house. From a supply chain standpoint, that's an utter nightmare. Um, we do weekly delivery where you order a week in advance. And yet, are sometimes customers upset that they're placing their order now and they're not going to get their food for a week? Absolutely. All day long, people say, oh, well, Amazon Prime is, you know, next day. How, how come you guys aren't next day? And we're like, oh, we're working towards that. We have the amazing customer service to explain why we don't want to do that. And when customers hear that we're not throwing away a huge amount of food, 
they actually feel much better about that. You know, Muntry was throwing away 600,000 meals a month. That's how much waste they had, and that's why they were losing $5 million a month. Because everybody would order on Thursday while they're working hard during the week. And then Friday, everybody's going to a pizza place or happy hour or whatever it is, and they eat out. They made all these meals, and they just have to throw them in the trash. Um, so it, keeping a low customer acquisition cost, having a higher lifetime value, eliminating waste throughout the supply chain, both with us and our suppliers, and then you know setting up a business model that actually works for the business. Because I don't know what the best way to say this is. Customers... Uh, will always want more and more and more, and especially in 2019. You know, you can immediately order a car to be here. You know, you can you can do anything almost instantly on your phone. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have to set proper expectations that uh, you have to set up the business model so that it also works for the business. And most people are, you explain it to them on your website and then, you know, conversations with your customer service team, they'll understand. You know, most people are business savvy enough that they get it. So we set up the business model to make sure that we were making money every month. So yes, a lot of people got creamed in the space. Probably the most public one was Blue Apron. They IPO'd after raising, I think it was $235 million. Um, they IPO'd and they got creamed in the market when they did their SEC filing and everybody saw it that their customer acquisition cost was higher than their net profit, which means every customer they brought on board, they were losing money. Does any investor in this room want to be involved in that business? God, no. No, there's no reason. So we, you know, we make sure that all of the internal metrics in the business made sense at a small scale so that as we scale up, we don't fall into the same pitfalls as our competitors. And that's one area that we do watch our competitors on is their metrics. You know, we, we make sure we have better metrics than they do. I know most of my competitors gross profit margin, you know, how many subscribers they have, all of these various different things, and we make sure uh, we beat them across the board when it comes to metrics. Does that answer? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, my. Thanks. Uh, my question is about the acquisition you Could you walk us through that thought process a little bit? always know, I mean, I think I understood you correctly, required the fitness app part of your business. Mm-hmm. Could you walk us through the thought process? Did you always know that that was something you wanted to add? Was it something that just sort of presented itself as an opportunity? I was kind of wondering what your thought process was for that process. Sure. It, it was a little bit of both. Uh, we knew that, so everybody in here's goal is customer success. Like that's the reason we're in business. We want our customers to succeed at whatever particular problem we're solving. And we knew in the nutrition space, people stick to their diet better if they track what they eat. It's just as simple as that. It doesn't matter what diet you follow. Most people overeat because they have no idea what they're eating throughout the day. They're just going throughout their day eating food. And we knew that being able to track it was a huge cornerstone to our customers being successful. Um, so we had looked at different tracking apps, uh, and we had seen the massive popularity of, of MyFitnessPal. Uh, you know, they were acquired by Under Armour for about $435 million. Uh, they have an enormous user base, uh, you know, over 200 million users. 
they're kind of the 200 pound gorilla in that space. And we knew, A, that's an amazing new way to acquire customers, customer acquisition costs down. You can download my free app and then you have all this tracking functionality, but I get your email. And now I can market to you food. And the other piece of it uh, was, I mean, there are a lot more kind of deeper stuff that you know doesn't make sense to get into in this meeting or in this kind of forum. But uh, one of the things we're all, all of us are always like voraciously looking for is more data on our customers. And what better data can I get than millions of people that are using my app all around the world, logging their food, telling me what they're eating. If I know you had steak four times this week, you better believe I'm going to send you an email that says, check out our flat iron steak. It's delicious. It's 20% off this week, etc. So as AI gets more and more advanced on the inbound marketing side of the fence, I can do much better one-to-one marketing with each individual person in here and market to them specific things that they want. Um, and then for us, our long-term goal is to get into healthcare. We see that as the multi-billion-dollar opportunity uh, that really is kind of the solution for the healthcare epidemic in the United States. Uh, and we know having solid data on the nutrition side of the fence is going to be key to that. So it was also kind of a long-term thought process of. You know, we're, we're in talks with Medi-Cal and Kaiser and all these people to get food into healthcare because it makes economic sense for everybody. Uh, and we knew we were going to need solid data to be able to support that. And we wanted users feeding us huge amounts of data that we can anonymize and say, hey, people that track their food and eat trifecta lose weight over time. Look at these tens of thousands of graphs of us doing it again and again and again and again. So it gives us a huge amount of data as well. Um, It was also uh, useful from a personnel acquisition standpoint. So the CEO of that company is now our CTO. Um, And we also, you know, brought on board a project manager, some developers, et cetera, et cetera. So we really kind of beefed up our internal dev team, uh, you know, by directly partnering with acquiring the the app company and and yeah you know I know I've been given a a pitch for the uh, uh, you know Witten Law team in here Um, definitely have good lawyers when it comes to the acquisition side of the fence it's going to be a long negotiation with lots of contracts Uh, we did it in conjunction with our Series A um, and yeah it was yes so yeah we, we had set up some Series C docs where we you know, we're essentially telling them, hey, when we complete the Series A, that's when we'll kind of consummate the acquisition because it was all kind of happening at the same time. Uh, and we, we really did it all in... in so you used part of the Series A to No, we... Well, yes and no. As part of the Series A, we gave them a chunk of Trifecta stock as payment for us acquiring the app. So they became internal part of the Trifecta team, which was a much bigger company with many millions of more dollars in sales than them. So they got a bunch of value for the app. And then simultaneously, we got the app and their whole team in the process. So, you know, acquisitions don't have to happen at the, you know, the Nestle level where I'm handing over $100 million. You know, they can, they can happen at the smaller level as well. Um, before I double up, yeah. So, uh, who were your first key hires and when you were bootstrapping? Did you decide? Did you get your decide what your dream team was and 
get the funding for that, or did you modify who you needed to start? Um, it's a great question, and I, I don't know if I necessarily got it figured out at this point. Um, one of the big advantages I had early on is is uh, I had a good operator. Um, so initially, as the previous company was kind of growing, uh, Trifecta was like a skunk works project inside the bigger company, the drink company that I was running. Uh, and I hadn't put a lot of effort into getting it off the ground, so I, I actually convinced my baby sister to quit her six-figure job as a channel manager for PayPal and Square and to come on board and, you know, be a partner in this new corporation that I had started up for Trifecta. Um, so she did a phenomenal job doing kind of the operator day-to-day stuff where I got all the big picture things and the fundraising and all of, of those type of things. Uh, we also had, you know, phenomenal technical support. You know, I can code myself, but nowhere near some of the people that are on our team. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was really about kind of hiring people based on the, you know, the, the highest, best use of time, the immediate need that was going to have the biggest impact on the company. And if you're the person that's out there evangelizing the brand, you know, my job is to make sure the graph goes up and to the right and that we have a lot of cash in the bank. As long as I'm doing both of those two things, you know, the company will probably be okay. So those are the two things I absolutely own no matter what. And I needed somebody to make sure, you know, to be there to, you know, deal with kind of day-to-day operations, one-on-one with employees, you know, order management, all of those type of things in the beginning. So, you know, a lot of you guys are the technical person. A lot of you guys are the kind of sales creative. I'm the entrepreneur person. Uh, meet up with each other and start a business together. Um, you know, because that's it's definitely very useful to have someone on both ends of the spectrum, especially in the in the early days. That was a big key to our success. So entrepreneurship is an inherently scary at times. So what was your scariest moment? Um, it's a great question. There, there have been a whole bunch of situations I've been in where I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to get out of this? Uh, the, one of my, this is a totally non-related to business quote that I'm sure you guys will never have heard anybody quote before in their entire lives. Uh, but if you've seen the movie, the movie series, The Matrix, there's a little character in it called The Keymaker. And he, his quote in the movie is, there's always another way. He always has a key for the next door that they get to no matter what. And probably, God, worst moments uh, when the previous company was winding down, I had like maxed every credit card, maxed every loan, lost all the money, you know, it was pretty much bankrupt and then some, and it got so bad that I could no longer make my car payment. So my car got towed from in front of my house. Um, All kinds of just financial just total disaster and it was always okay what can I do to you know to to get the car back to then you know do this next uh, step etc etc in my mind um, I always think of myself as an unstoppable force you know there's nothing that anybody can put in my way that that I'm not going to find a way to get over that hurdle because you guys will get non-stop hurdles every single day for the entirety of the business all the way up to the level of, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, the, the richest guy in the world. He's still got 
all kinds of hurdles, you know. Now the federal government's probably going to break Amazon up or something. You know, there's 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 always going to be a new problem for you to. Yeah, well, yeah, he'll definitely lose a lot of money on that. But yeah, the uh, you know the point is there's always going to be a new problem, and just having that kind of problem-solving mindset uh, is really what it comes down to. You know, no matter what the problem is, hey, you're out of money. How can you get more money? You know, can you find investors? Can you do a Kickstarter? You know, can you ask your, you know, rich uncle who you didn't haven't talked to in ten years? You know, whatever you have to do, there's always another way. You know, you can always find a way to to solve the problem. And that that mindset has definitely helped me in situations where I'm like literally laying in bed, going, "God, I have this bill due that's 120 days." past due, you know, I have to be able to get some money to be able to do this next production run, whatever the situation is, you know, when you're in those type of situations, you have to go, okay, there's a solution out there. I just need to figure out, you know, what it is. So I definitely have always had the, you know, never quit no matter what uh, mindset. And it's also helped me to think about, you know, we've got it great here in America. Even when I was on my brokest, poorest day, you know, I, I, I still have it much better than, you know, a whole bunch of billions of people in other countries throughout the world that are trying to be entrepreneurs. They don't have a good banking system or, you know, have real poverty problems. Um, so yeah, I mean, keeping that in the back of your mind while simultaneously problem solving throughout whatever, you know, problem it is essentially. I think we have time for maybe two more questions. Who has not asked a question that's dying to ask a question? Not ask the question. Ask the question. Who's not who? Nobody's. Here we go. <laughs> so I'm I'm free rev. Got everything lined up. Everything's perfect. But I'm free rev. Mm-hmm. And I want to know. Can I get an investor at pre rev? Uh, what type of business is it? You don't have to give me specifics. I'm sorry. It's a song sharing business. Is it software? Uh, it's an app. Potentially. It's an app. Yeah, potentially you can. I'm a CTO. Um, I've got a great team. Everything's lined up. Is there a reason you guys haven't taken it live? We're, we're uh, just close to everything being. Yeah, I, I would say launch it. And, you know, if you, if you want to, there's a lot of ways to kind of get pre-rev money. Something like a, a Kickstarter or something along those lines. Take pre-orders. Do anything you can okay. to start monetizing the app. Uh, find an influencer and sell them why it's going to be the next big app. It doesn't have to be a huge influencer. You know, you guys don't need to have The Rock on board as your first influencer. Get someone who has fifty thousand followers on Instagram or you know YouTube. Twitter. Yeah, YouTube guitar you know player or something. Um, in terms of conversions on the influencer side. Uh, Twitter is the devil. You want uh, YouTube and Instagram. People buy shit on YouTube and Instagram. Also Pinterest a little, but that's a little bit harder to, to play. Those two are the big uh, you know, revenue drivers. But yeah, I would just launch it, get it out there, get it up and running, uh, and be fundraising while you're simultaneously working and building on the business. And if you know the CTO and early stage people are shareholders as well, tell them... Hey, in the beginning, we got to work for free as we, you know, scale this thing up. I'm sure they've done that for no, the pre-rev. Yeah, they're, they've done that for the pre-rev portion. So yeah, get it, 
get it launched because investors are very unlikely to invest until you've got either eyeballs or money. You can go the Facebook route and be like, hey, I've got half a million users because investors can go, oh, we can monetize that in the future. But if you don't have users and you don't have money, it's like, what are they investing in? Just an idea, you know? Got it. You know, I have a thousand million dollar ideas every single day. Everybody's like, I got a million dollar idea. I'm like, I have them all the time. Execution is what matters. So like get it out there as quick as you can and start executing would would be my best advice. Hey, one last question. Who's got it? I'll let you pick Greg. All right. Uh, Sounds like you like quotes. Right? Like I am a big reader, so yes, I love quoting things. Do you know the Winston Churchill quote? Maybe it could be your slogan. The never, never, never give no. up? Or the, which one? No, healthy citizens. Uh, maybe. Wait, what's the quote? Healthy citizens are the greatest asset any country can have. That is a fantastic quote. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that. That is our company mission absolutely to the core. <laughs> Um, that wasn't fully. That, a question, was a, that was a statement, so we need to touch it. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Last question. What advice do you recommend starting entrepreneurs to read? Oh, dear Lord, it's a long list. Um, or your top five. Or your top five. Yeah, top, top five. Um, for the leadership piece, I would recommend Radical Candor. Um, for the kind of social media and un- understanding how to interact on social media. I recommend uh, Thank You Economy. Um, Thank You Economy. It's Gary Vee's second book, I think. Um, In terms of fundraising, I would recommend Raising Venture Capital for the Serious Entrepreneur. Uh, That book has all the, you know, fundraising models, every term you're going to get on a term sheet because you're going to sit down with investors and they're going to go... Well, we want you to, you know, we want to invest, but we want it to be participating preferred shares with a 1x multiple and a blah, blah, blah cap. And you're going to go, sure. <laughs> you know, because you have no idea what that means. Um, so that would be fundraising. Um, I'm trying to think of other very useful ones for me um, in terms of marketing. I mean, marketing. Oh, so this isn't a book, but this will probably be the single most useful thing any of you guys will read. Uh, Go to digitalmarketer.com and read the CBO article. Uh, It stands for Customer Value Optimization, and they will show you how to build an entire inbound marketing funnel on the internet. That is the most important core aspect of your business. If you do not have that, if you don't have one element of it, you can have a Ferrari of a business, but you don't have a lead magnet, so it's like a Ferrari without wheels. It's it's CVO? Not, CVO for Customer that? Value Optimization. Digital. DigitalMarketer.com. Um, that phenomenally valuable uh, article. Um, I, I would say those are like a good starting point uh, for everybody. And then, yeah, I could send out a book list to Jeff or something later, but... <laughs> Those are easy places to start. So thank you guys for listening to me and rambling.